You can't help it. Your eyes are drawn right to it. Is that the kind of person you are? Or maybe when you're out driving in your car, are you an observant person then? Is your head on a swivel? You know, you're looking this way and that way and occasionally looking in front of you, but, but you're, you know, you just, you're just observing. Hey, there's people walking there. Look at that dog and, you know, that pretty house and all those flowers. And you just, wow, you're always looking. You're always scanning. Is that the kind of person you are? I was driving home a couple of months ago from church here and past the park near my house, and I noticed some graffiti, some graffiti there at the park. And, man, I hate that, don't you? Do you hate it when you see like something really pretty and it's been defaced with graffiti? Well, you know, graffiti is not something new. Did you know that? Graffiti is not just a phenomena of the last few decades. Actually, graffiti goes way, way back. In 1857, in fact, in 1857, archaeologists were digging in the old part of the city of Rome. And they uncovered a, a home there that had been walled up for, for a very long time. And there, on a plaster wall on the outside of that home, they found some graffiti. And the graffiti dated back to the beginning of the 3rd century A.D. It was really kind of an interesting image that had been left there by the graffiti artist. It was the body of a man stretched out on a Roman cross, and it bore the head of a donkey, the body of a man and the head of a donkey crucified on a cross. And then off to the side of the picture, there was a young man with one hand raised in what we're pretty sure is an, an act of worship. Underneath the picture, in very crude Greek, was scratched out this following caption, Aleximenos worships his God. Alexa Menos worships his God. You know, that graffiti image left there from the beginning of the third century really gives us a glimpse into the view of the Greco-Roman world with regard to that fledgling faith that you and I know as Christianity. This is how the world saw those early Christians worshiping a man with the head of a donkey crucified on a Roman cross. Shouldn't surprise anyone, though, for the Apostle Paul, 150 years or more before that, had written these words in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just listen as I read. Paul says, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wow. What is it about the Christian message that created such animosity in the ancient world. And in fact, an animosity that continues into the world that you and I live in today. What is it about the gospel that is so offensive to people? The opening words of the Bible 
in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 are as follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As creator of heavens and earth, God stands in relationship to his creation as a potter to the clay. He is absolutely and totally sovereign over everything that he has made this entire universe. And it exists for his good pleasure, his glory. Its purpose is fulfilled by pleasing him. You know, that's the reason the psalmist can write in Psalm chapter 19 and verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. When you look up at that night sky and you see the stars from one end of the heavens to the other. Know that they were put there by the finger of God that it might bring him pleasure. That it might declare to all that God is. It's very interesting, you know, God the Father is the author of creation. But the agent through which he brought this creation into being is actually the Son of God. Second person of the triune Godhead. The one we know as Jesus the Christ. Paul tells us exactly that in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. He writes, for by him, that is Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. So let me ask that question again. What is it about Christianity that elicits such animosity among people that causes such hostility to well up in their hearts when they come face to face with the Christian gospel? Well, the answer is that this creator, God, assumed human flesh, came to earth, walked among men, lived a perfectly pure and innocent life, and then was ruthlessly butchered on a Roman cross, rising from the dead on the third day and ascending back to the right hand of the Father from which he oversees his creation someday to return as a glorious triumphant king and put his enemies as a footstool under his feet. Beloved, that is the Christian gospel. And when that gospel is proclaimed in its fullness with power and vigor, it creates animosity in people's hearts. The very notion of a crucified Messiah is anathema to people. It elicited in the ancient world this graffiti drawing of the body of a man with the head of a jackass. This is how the ancient world thought of our Christian faith. Open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning for our text. I've entitled our message, From Glory to Glory. From Glory to Glory. Philippians chapter 2. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles available for you. They're in the pew rack right in front of you. Or if you happen to be sitting on an aisle, you can reach under your seat, pull one of those Bibles out. And if you'll open it up to 
page 1175, 1175, you will arrive at the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 and running through verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 through 11. Christ Jesus, Paul writes, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this passage before us, the Apostle Paul briefly recounts for us the journey that brought the Son of God from the throne room of glory to the shame of the cross to the resurrection and coronation and return back to the throne room of glory. I've entitled this message, From Glory to Glory. And as we look at this text together this morning, I want to give you just three words, three simple words that you can hang your thoughts on, a little outline of our text together this morning that will help you stay organized as we go. So are you ready? First word is condescension. Condescension. Number one, condescension. Second word, crucifixion. Second word, crucifixion. So condescension, crucifixion. And then the third word this morning is coronation. Coronation. So condescension, crucifixion, coronation. These three words really capture the essence of the Christian message. And Paul has densely packed them for us here in the section right in front of us. Now, there's something we need to know here about the ancient world. We need a, we need a glimpse historically back into the ancient world. So I'm going to give you just a little glimpse. The ancient world considered pride to be a virtue and humility a flaw. Surprising, isn't it? The ancient world considered pride to be a virtue and humility a flaw. Guess what? So does ours, right? So does ours. We, too, as a people, worship pride and disdain humility. In the ancient world, the pagan gods were nothing more than essentially men blown big. And the Jews reveled in their position as the chosen people of God and looked with disdain on all who lay outside of their covenant promise. So it is this world, pagans whose gods are men blown big, and Jews who look down on everyone who is not Jewish into this toxic soup of pride and self-promotion stepped the very Son of God. He left the throne room of glory and condescended to step into space and time 
on a search and rescue mission to redeem fallen humanity. Jesus himself says it in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. He says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Paul has for us here in these verses, 6 through 11, some very powerful, theologically deep expressions that pull together the reality of this round trip from glory to glory. Expressions that really defy human comprehension and explanation. We are peering into the mysteries of the Godhead this morning. And Paul will peel back the curtain just a little, allow us to have a little glimpse in. But beloved, neither, neither you nor I, even if the curtain were yanked wide open, could possibly comprehend the miracle of the incarnation and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul will give us a glimpse here. First, in condensation, or condescension in verses 6 and 7. Let's look at first verse 6 where Paul spells out the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, Paul says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does it mean that Jesus Christ existed in the form of God? What does that mean? The Greek word that stands behind the English word translated form for us here stresses the the inner essence or the reality of who Jesus is. It's not a word that that focuses on external features, but instead on characteristics and qualities that are essential to divinity. One that quickly comes to mind is the one that comes out of Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 that we just read. That is that Jesus Christ is creator of heavens and earth. That is a, that is an essential quality of godness. And so Jesus, Paul tells us, exists in the form of God. That is, that he has the essential characteristics of God. Beyond that, Paul speaks to us here. He says he existed in the form of God and he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And really, these two statements, existed in the form of God and equality with God, are parallel statements, both pointing to the full divinity of Jesus Christ. He is second person of the triune Godhead, absolutely God, very God, creator of heaven and earth. Paul goes on, speaking of this preexistent one in verse 6, and notice he said that his godness was not something to be grasped. Do you see that? Not something to be grasped. That is that Jesus did not grasp after the the prerogatives of deity. He didn't didn't hesitate to set aside his independent use of his power and authority and to come willingly and humbly, depending completely upon the Spirit of God, to guide and direct him as he walked this earth in human form. Jesus took to himself human flesh, walked on this earth, and did so in full dependence Upon his father. How do I know that? Because he says it himself in John chapter 6 and verse 38. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The will of him who sent me. 
So this pre-existent one, God, who is very God, humbled himself, condescended to take to himself, verse 7, human flesh. He emptied himself. Do you see it? Verse 7. He emptied himself. This is also an amazingly profound expression. When he says he emptied himself, Paul's not speaking here about subtraction. He's actually speaking about addition. Addition, because the definition of him empty himself comes in the second part of the verse, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's what it meant for Jesus to empty himself, to condescend. He took to himself a human nature and the character of a slave. I can put it this way. The master became a servant. God became man. That's what it means to empty himself. Master becomes servant. Look again, verse 7. Taking the form of a bondservant. Taking the form of the bondservant. The exact same Greek term used back up in verse 6, the form of God. So what he's saying is that in the incarnation, Jesus took to himself the inner essence or reality of humanity. He took to himself a real human body. He became absolutely 100% man. Just like me and just like you, except without sin. Except without sin. And Paul goes on to say that he stepped into the stream of humanity to assume the role of a slave, taking the form of a bondservant. Maybe I can say it this way. Although in reality he is God, he became in reality a slave. He became in reality a slave. Jesus himself refers to this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. He says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He portrayed it in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed when his disciples were there. And they, Jesus took a towel and girded himself in a basin of water and he went around and he performed the duties of a slave by washing the filthy feet of every one of his disciples, including the one who would betray him. Jesus became a bondservant, Paul says, made in the likeness of men, the end of the verse. God became man. Jesus is fully human in every sense of the word, and we must understand that. Absolutely human, yet without sin. He experienced all the trials and travails of life, just like me and just like you. Jesus understands what it means to be tempted. Jesus understands what it means to be discouraged. Jesus understands what it means to be in pain, to have weakness, to have sorrow, to have all of the trials and travails that come to us because we live in a fallen world, Jesus knows every single one of them. He experienced them himself. And beloved, by knowing our weaknesses in this way, in an experiential way, he qualifies himself to stand in as our representative, as our Savior, to redeem us from this fallen world. Maybe I can illustrate for you a little bit about this idea of leaving the throne room of glory to come to earth as a slave. In 1882, the American author Mark Twain released a publication of a story called The Prince and the Pauper. The Prince and the Pauper. And the 
The storyline of it goes basically like this. There was a future king of England, a young boy by the name of Edward Tudor. And he, through a, a happenstance, changes clothes and identities with, a, with another young boy who looks much like him, whose name is Tom Canty. Tom Canty is the unloved son of a beggar and a thief. And so they change identities, change clothes, change roles. Tom Canty enters into the palace, and Edward Tudor begins to learn what it means to live the life of a beggar on the streets of England. There, although he is the future king of England, and eventually the actual king of England when his father dies in the story, no one will believe him that he is that he is royal, that he's from royal blood. And so he goes through a harrowing series of adventures where he is brutally treated in the English countryside in life outside the castle. Of course, the story ends with the identities being reversed and each character learns valuable lessons about life. But the important thing for us is to understand that Edward Tudor learned by experience, by leaving the castle to live among the peons. Jesus left the glory of heaven to live among the peons. That's you and me. So he knows what it means to be a man. Think with me on this. How amazing this is. When God entered into human history, when God decided to enter into human history in order to save Mankind, he didn't do so as Lord of glory. He entered as a slave. He entered into the stream of humanity as a slave, a position without advantage, without right, or without privilege. That was his great plan. And it is most clearly portrayed by his death on a cross. His death on a cross. And that, my friends, is scandalous. Absolutely scandalous. Condescension. Second word. Crucifixion. Crucifixion. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It was invented by the Persians. It was picked up by the Greeks and it was perfected by the Romans. It became the official means by which the Roman government executed its criminals. It was such a horrendous way to die that a Roman citizen was by law protected from crucifixion. One of the benefits of being a citizen of Rome was that you could not be crucified. Crucifixion was reserved only for the scum of the earth, for the lowest of the low. It was for slaves. It was for vicious criminals. It was for insurrectionists, those who were seeking to overthrow the government of Rome. They were the ones to be crucified. But your average run-of-the-mill citizen of Rome, even if they would be a criminal, could not be crucified. Why? Why? The answer lies in the horrific 
nature of this means of execution. Crucifixion would mean that the victim would first be flogged. They would be flogged until their back was entirely lacerated, possibly with ribs even exposed. Then they would be stripped naked in an act of humiliation and bound to a crossbar by nails and ropes. That crossbar would then be raised up and placed on a gibbet, and there they would hang sometimes for more than 24 hours as the effects began to to take hold. Death in crucifixion comes by suffocation. It is a slow suffocation as the body sags, the diaphragm collapses, and the, and the person is unable to draw a breath. And so they push themselves up off of their hands and feet and gasp for a breath and then sag again in excruciating agony as thirst and blood loss and the searing pain of lacerated flesh begin to perform their agonizing work. No more brutal means of execution has ever been devised. Can I say something to you? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a cosmic crime. The proportion of which can never be replicated. This innocent one was Condemned to death by the most brutal means available in a mockery of justice. A society that prided itself on its legal system had completely set that system aside. And this man was unjustly condemned and executed in the most brutal way imaginable. Even the Roman governor himself, Pilate, said to the chief priests and the crowds who had gathered and were screaming for his blood, Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. Luke 23, verse 4. But the death of Jesus Christ, beloved, and listen to me now, the death of Jesus Christ was no accident. It was a crime. It was a miscarriage of justice, but it was no accident. It was in accordance with the eternal and sovereign plan of God decreed in eternity past that the second person of the Godhead, Jesus the Christ, would come to earth to live and die for his people that he might atone for their sin. The Bible is exceedingly clear on this matter. The wages of sin is death. And God does not negotiate His holy justice. No one may escape. In the Old Testament, God provided a covering for His people. An innocent lamb would shed His blood, and that blood would provide a temporary covering for the people of God. Looking forward to the day with the coming of Messiah, the final lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world, that temporary covering would be removed and the problem of sin would be permanently dealt with and a solution made available to any and all who would call upon his name in faith. Seven centuries before the coming of Jesus Christ, the ancient Jewish prophet Isaiah looked forward in time and spoke of his day. He wrote as follows, He, that is the coming one, has no stately form or majesty, that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, face he was despised and we did not esteem him. Beloved, it is this reality. It is this reality that God would come as a man and would die in ignominy that causes the scandal of the Christian faith. It is this very reality that caused that ancient graffiti artist to inscribe what he did on that plaster wall. The very notion that the creator God of the universe would condescend to come as a man and not just a man, but a slave and not just a slave, but one who would be executed on a Roman cross was more than the ancient mind could handle. And I might tell you this, it is more than the modern mind can handle as well, unless the spirit of God opens your heart to receive this truth. This is the plan. This is the purpose of God. It was decreed before eternity passed that his own son would come and he would die to save his people from their sin. Listen again to the prophet Isaiah as he writes of these of his day. Surely, he says, our griefs Messiah himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Isaiah 53. But, beloved, the story doesn't end at the cross. Amen? I'm so glad the story doesn't end at the cross. It doesn't end there at the tomb with a body laid in the ground, his disciples scattered and and discouraged, broken and forsaken. It doesn't end there. Three days later, the very power of God was revealed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And he lives forevermore. He has conquered death. He has conquered sin. And he has now ripped heaven wide open and made it available to all who will call upon him in faith. It is the, the Jesus Christ who once had the position of a slave who is now Lord of lords and King of kings. Amen. Wow. What a return trip to glory. And beloved, you know something? That's why the cross, the means of execution, has become the the signpost of the Christian faith. It It is the very symbol of all that we believe. Who would walk around with a hangman's noose around their neck? Who would carry an electric chair in their pocket? And yet it is the cross that which Rome used to execute the scum of the scum that we look at and say that it is in the cross. I glory because it is in the cross of Jesus Christ, empty as it is, that we find our victory over sin. When you look at that empty cross behind me, you see no body hanging there. He has risen from the dead and you may rise with him if you will embrace him by faith. Oh, it is the cross of Jesus Christ in which we glory because it is the empty cross of Christ that leads to his coronation. Third word, coronation, verses 9 to 11. Coronation. Oh, I can't help but remember 
the night in which Jesus was betrayed, a matter of an hour or two actually before the soldiers were to come and to take him away, that Jesus had a time of prayer with his father. That prayer is recorded for us in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. Let me read for you just a a few verses of that amazing prayer as Jesus prays out to his father, a prayer that I call mission accomplished. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Did God answer his prayer? You bet he answered his prayer. He answered his prayer through the resurrection from the dead and his return to glory as the coronated king of creation. Paul gives it to us here beginning in verse 9, Philippians 2. Therefore, also God highly exalted him and bestowed him in the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow! Having condescended to leave the throne room of glory in order to suffer and die in the place of sinful humanity, Jesus now enjoys the fruit of His triumph. He has become the beloved Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. He has been, Paul says, super exalted as Lord of, all, of Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings. He who was formerly a slave is now called Master. Master, Lord. You know, the Scriptures record for us in a series of places that over the 40 days following the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he made numerous appearances to his disciples. He spent time with them. He taught them. He encouraged them. He instructed them out of the scriptures. And he gave to them a a commission, a mandate to go into the world to make disciples by preaching the good news of the gospel of the condescended, crucified, coronated Lord of glory. And those disciples went forth and they turned the world upside down. They were completely sold out and committed to the resurrected one. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, more than 500 of witnesses saw him at one time. Jesus instructed them over these 40 days and gave them insight into the Old Testament, whereby they might come to understand that His return to glory is only temporary. That He has gone there to sit at the right hand of the Father, to intercede on behalf of His people, and to wait for His return to earth to establish His great millennial kingdom 1,000 years. (laughs) Can I let you in on a secret here? I'd like to let you in on a little secret. This world's messed up. Or maybe you already knew that. It's it's broken. It's bent. It's twisted. It doesn't work out right. 
There is injustice everywhere. There is poverty. There is violence. There is blasphemy. This world is topsy-turvy. I want to let you in on another little secret. Washington can't do anything about it. Washington can't do a thing about it, and nor can any human government. It doesn't matter how much money they spend. It doesn't matter how many peace treaties they sign. They cannot solve the problem of this broken life. And you know why they can't solve it? Because we are the problem. We are the broken ones. We are the ones who are bent and twisted and deformed. We are the ones who bring forth iniquity and and violence. We need a Savior. And this world is not going to be straightened out until that Savior returns and establishes His kingdom. Until He puts His enemies as a footstool under His feet. Until He establishes His his worldwide global reign in which peace and prosperity will go from sea to sea. In which disease will be banished. In which evil will be suppressed. In which war will be done away with. The implements of war, the Scriptures tell us, will be beaten into plowshares. The prosperity that will pour forth when this world is no longer intent on blowing itself up will be be beyond anything we can imagine. It is coming, beloved. It is coming. As surely as He rose from the dead, it is coming. He is King of kings, and He is Lord of lords, and He is coming again. And Paul tells us here that when He comes, every knee, verse 10, will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that is, angels and demons and living and the dead. Every single creature will bow their knee before the Lord of glory and every tongue will confess, verse 11, that Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is coming. It is coming. Praise God, it is coming. And that puts us in a quandary here. Scripture says every single one of us will bow the knee before Him. None will escape. Every knee will bow Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see it, verse 11? No exceptions. That puts us in a quandary. See, we are the fallen children of Adam. The fallen children of Adam. And Paul tells us, we will bow and we will confess. There is no escape. The question is, when will you bow and confess? When will you confess? Beloved, if you do it in this life, by faith, embracing Him as Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and confess His name by faith, you are what the Scripture calls a child of God. You have been redeemed. You have been transformed. Your old fallen nature has been transformed, and you are now fit and suited by the righteousness of Christ given to you by faith to live eternally in the presence of God. But if you don't, if you neglect this opportunity, if you turn from this opportunity and say, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. He's not my king. He's not my Lord. I'm my own Lord. I'm captain of my own ship. I'll do what I want. I'm willing to bet it's not true. Oh, let me warn you, beloved. Let me warn you in the strongest terms I can. You will bow and you will confess. Because you will face Him. You will face Him as either your Savior or your judge. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. Will you have this man as your Savior? 
or will you face him someday as your judge? But most assuredly, your knee will bow and your tongue will confess. Paul tells us that if by faith you seek to confess him now in this life, then according to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it looks like this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. What will you have today? Easter Sunday, 2010. What will you have today? Will you receive this man as your Savior? Or will you wait and face him someday as your judge? Oh, I pray with all my heart that you would throw yourself even now on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Oh, Father, it is your plan of redemption made together in in the secret councils of the Godhead before eternity passed. Brought forward in space and time when in the fullness of time you sent forth your Son born as a woman born under the law, entering into the stream of humanity, living and walking among men, facing every trial and temptation that life can throw at him, and yet without sin, facing them all down, walking in perfect righteousness, and then this holy, innocent, undefiled one brutally murdered on a Roman cross and done so for me and for those who will call upon him by faith. He, our Father, is the substitute that you have provided. He is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. He is the one whose life blood cleanses us from sin, O Lord, let our faith be strengthened even now. Let this Easter message ring in our ears and resonate in our hearts. And let us by faith cling to the resurrected one. We rejoice in his coronation. We look forward to his return. We pray that you would hasten it, O Lord, and establish peace and prosperity and righteousness upon this fallen and mixed up world. O Lord, I pray For those in the hearing of my voice this morning who have yet to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, have yet to bend the knee before Him, have yet to confess with their mouth that He is indeed Lord of creation. Oh, Father, may You today prompt their heart, open their eyes to see, their ears to hear. Grant them Your saving grace that they might embrace the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that from this day forward, their life would be anew. Oh, Father, accomplish your purposes in us, we pray, even now, that Jesus is Lord. Amen.